your way there. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 27. If you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles that Kayla mentioned before, uh, that's going to be page 810. So big, big picture question for you this morning as you're, as you're making your way there. What's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world? And this was a question that we might ask from time to time. This was a question that actually was posed by the British newspaper The Times in the early 20th century, so about 100 years ago. And the paper published this article and invited essay-length responses, and from, from how the, the story goes, gathered many of these responses. If that same question were to be posed to us today, what's wrong with the world? What kind of responses would you imagine that we would collect? It could be numerous, I'm sure. Uh, probably the things that we're talking about this month would make the list. That people are trafficked for labor, that people are trafficked for sex, uh, that people are in poverty, that people are hungry, that discord and hatred exist between different races, different ethnicities, political parties, all kinds of types of groups. There's hatred and discord amongst people. Wars turn millions into refugees. They're displaced from their homeland with nowhere to go. We could add more and more to that list, I'm sure, if we were to stop and think about it. And of course, all of those answers are true. right? Those things are things that are wrong with the world. But in response to that article in the early 20th century, only one answer has really been remembered for a hundred years or so now. And it came from an author, philosopher, theologian, a man named G.K. Chesterton. And in contrast to the essay-length responses that many people sent in in response to that, Chesterton's response was short, really short, and to the point. The entire response went like this. Dear sirs, regarding your article, What's Wrong with the World? I am. Yours truly G.K. Chesterton. That's the whole response that he sent back in. Now, none of us wants to think that way. That, that, that we are what's wrong with the world. That I am what's wrong with the world. There's this little defense attorney in our soul that like rises up to object right in that moment when we start to think that way. And we say, no, the problem's out there. The problem's out there. The problem is with that group of people. The problem is with that system. Anywhere, but but within me. And yet, as he speaks about the ethics of the kingdom of God, in this Sermon on the Mount, one of these famous discourses that Jesus gives, one of the biggest ways that Jesus turns the world upside down is by taking the problems we often think of as being out there and relocating them in here, into the human heart. So I am what's wrong with the world, and you are what's wrong with the world. We are what's wrong with the world. One of the primary ways that Jesus expresses this is by taking on misinterpretations of God's laws in the Old Testament. He does this actually six times in this kind of subsection we're in in the Sermon on the Mount. We're just going to look at one of those today. We're going to look at one that addresses adultery and lust. And where most people saw these laws as merely external codes of conduct, something to be externally complied with, Jesus clarifies here that this has everything to do with the heart. So you can follow along with me as I read. I'm going to read verses 27 through 30 uh, there in Matthew chapter 5. So follow along with me. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent 
has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And this is God's word. Let me pray for us this morning. Jesus, those are not easy words to hear for any of us, myself especially. And we desperately are going to need you to not only open our eyes to the depth of the problem, but to at the same moment open our eyes to the depth of your mercy for us and to help us see how your mercy toward us in the depth of our own sin is the same kind of mercy that has the power to change the world to rescue people in the world. So would you encourage us by the deep truth of your word this morning? Would you break us so that you can build us up in your grace? And we pray that in your name. Amen. So here we we have an example of Jesus taking what what exists out there, sins that exist out there, and relocating them in here to our our own hearts. And the two things that we're just going to look at this morning, that this is a heart-level problem, and what is a heart-level response look like? Heart-level problem, a heart-level response. So the first thing, sin, really we could say that about all sin, but in this particular case, the sin of lust is a heart-level problem. Human beings, you and I, we are experts in the art of the loophole, are we not? We love loopholes. It's it's tax season right around the corner. We celebrate loopholes a lot during tax season. Accountants are celebrated for their ability to find those loopholes. We like that. Uh, my daughter is not yet three years old. Already, she's demonstrating great skill in finding loopholes. Uh, a, a while back, we, we told her that it wasn't okay for her to respond to us with the word no when we told her to do something. So, for example, um, Kara, I need you to pick up your toys. For her to say no is not an appropriate response to us in that moment. It's disobedient. We try to help her understand that as much as a two-year-old can. It took her less than a week to start coming up with alternatives to the word no that expressed the same exact thing. So, Kara, please pick up your toys. I don't. (laughs) Doesn't even make sense grammatically, but uh, I guess it gets the point across. Uh, Kara, please pick up your toys. Two minutes, five minutes. You just throw a number out there of time. My personal favorite, one of my personal favorites, Kara, please pick up your toys. She just says nothing and just she stares you down. She starts a staring (laughs) contest. Like, maybe I can break them if I just stare at them long enough. And I would say that she was like some kind of prodigy, some loophole prodigy, except that every parent I've ever talked to has the same exact experience. Kids inherently look for and learn how to look for loopholes. We live in central Pennsylvania, so we can also talk about the Amish. The Amish are masters at the loophole as well. And we can talk about lots of examples of this. They are experts at finding a way around the rule or the letter of the law. A few years ago for our anniversary, we took a Uh, an overnight to um, Lancaster County, got a tour in a horse and buggy from a man who was formerly Amish, and it was fascinating. I asked him a ton of questions about Amish Amish culture and the rules. Uh, He said uh, one of the best examples that he he gave, which really this made me think, like, the Amish, this is like the master's level course for loopholes. Um, You know, they, they have prohibitions against using modern technology, and particularly in things that they drive, vehicles. They can't drive automobiles. They use horse and buggy and things instead. And that also pertains to farm equipment. 
They can't drive around tractors and things of that nature. Things have to be drawn by horses. However, that says nothing about the machine itself and how the machine is powered. So you've got this whole line of products that exist for Amish farmers, like a giant combine that is run mechanically with an engine, and yet it's drawn by a team of horses through a field. Right? So that, that's a great example of how you find a way around the letter of the law. They're still very much using modern technology, but it's still drawn by horses, so I guess it's, I guess it's okay. Now that's funny, right? It's kind of ridiculous. We laugh. We laugh when we hear examples like that until, until we start to realize that you and I do exactly the same thing all the time. We love finding solutions to things that help us appear compliant while remaining completely unchanged and completely untransformed. Right? It's difficult, it's inconvenient to actually experience change and transformation in our lives. So if there's some solution that makes it possible for us to stay exactly the way we are, then we're going to prefer that, we're going to pursue that, rather than, at least in this case, the kind of righteousness that Jesus calls his people to. Now this is true in all areas of life. But what we'll see today is that it's especially true in the way we handle our sexuality. So Jesus says here at the beginning of this passage, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And Jesus is quoting here from the Ten Commandments. The seventh of those commandments, we can find them in the book of Exodus or the book of Deuteronomy, the seventh of those commandments forbids adultery. And adultery is sexual activity with someone who is not your spouse. And even as I say that, I'm sure that you can imagine, there's a very literal, letter-of-the-law way to view that. So if you're married, and you engage sexually with someone who is not your spouse, that would be adultery. Or if you're not married, and you engage with someone who is married to another person that's not you, that, that is also adultery. And before we go further into this, let's just pause and, and, and say this. When we talk about this, we're really opening up a really painful subject. We're opening up a really painful subject, and, and some of you in the room know that intimately. Some of you in the room have experienced exactly this. You have committed adultery yourself. You are married to someone who has committed adultery. This is not some problem that is distant to us in this room. And you would know better than anyone else, if that's you, that there's something that's immensely heartbreaking about the sin of adultery. And something immensely heartbreaking about the, the damage that it does in your own heart and life, if, if you're the one who's committed it, and in the lives of people around you. And the recovery from that, the recovery of that for you and the recovery of that for others, that's long and it's messy and it leaves a lot of scars. And because I know and I love and I call people dear friends who, are, who have and who are experiencing exactly this, the only reason that I would venture to even open up this topic this morning at all is because of my sure hope that where sin abounds, the grace and the mercy of Jesus abounds even more. Like, if that's not true, let's just go home. Let's just go home. Like, no one can bear the weight of this. 
But the grace and mercy of Jesus weighs more than this. So we can talk about it. And the other reason we've got to open up this topic is exactly because of what Jesus says here in this passage, that there's a deeper root to this. There's a deeper root to the external sin of adultery. And that deeper root is what often goes unchecked. It's what actually implicates basically everybody. And it's just as big a deal. Even though the the external sin has this stigma with it, the deeper root is just a big a deal. And our tendency as people is to really limit the scope and, and, and narrowly define things to the letter of the law definition. To do, as one scholar says, uh, to have a conveniently narrow definition of sexual sin and a conveniently broad definition of sexual purity. But instead of that, Jesus says here, this is a heart issue. It's something that exists deep within us, and it's something that is sinful long before it would ever manifest itself in some kind of external way. When Jesus says here that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart, he's expanding there the definition of sexual sin to include thoughts, to include motives. So our, our view of sex and where it comes from and what it's for is now all part of the consideration, not just what we do with our bodies physically. And as we learn from the whole counsel of God, we we learn that sex is this good and this beautiful gift that God has given. And it's meant for a celebration of this deep covenantal relationship between a husband and a wife in marriage. It's meant for enjoyment. You know, praise God for that. It's not just something functional. It's actually meant to be enjoyed. It's also meant for procreation. It's it's a way, and I I don't think I'll ever get over the, the amazing statement that this is, the amazing truth that it is, it's the way we get to become co-creators with God in new life. Right? That's, that's what it's for. And yet, where all of us get implicated by, in sin by Jesus' words here, is that there are a thousand different corruptions of the good gift of sex and its intended purposes. So adultery is one of those corruptions. The sex trafficking that we've heard about on the video and that Gretchen shared with you this morning that we that were talking about today, that's another kind of corruption. And you heard that expressed really well by Erica, I think, in that video that we watched. Uh, as a stripper, she talks about how she feels beautiful and sexy and powerful, but then like mid-thought, she kind of stops herself. Did you see that? And she went, but, it, but it's not, I'm not, they're not viewing me as beautiful or, or sexy. I'm an, she's, I'm an object to them. And that's the heart behind why sexual sin is so damaging. Sexual sin robs people of the value and the dignity and the worth that they have that every person has as an image bearer of God. And in sex trafficking, then, it, it's, it's not too hard for us to see, I think, how something like that robs the per, a person's dignity and a person's worth. And so rightfully, when we watch a video like that, something stirs in us and we become indignant about sex trafficking. We want to do something about it. But the inconsistency that emerges within us is that, as we, consi- as the, is that we, we start to consider those sins, like sex trafficking, as something different and distinct from our own thoughts and our own motives that exist in our hearts. So adultery and promiscuity or supporting the sex trafficking industry by going to a strip club or by paying a prostitute or something like that, that is, I know for some of us in the room, that is part of your story. And for some, that will be part of your story. 
But for many in the room, those specific things are probably not part of your story. And it's so easy for us when those things are not part of our story to become repulsed, to become indignant about sins that seem distant to us. Right? Is it not easy to become repulsed and indignant about sins that seem like we could never do that or be that bad? But Jesus' point here is that our lust, your lust, your viewing pornography, you're letting your mind wander into sexual fantasy. You're looking at a person and picturing them as a potential sex partner. Like all of that seemingly minor, quote-unquote, stuff that happens in our thoughts and motives, all of that comes from the very same heart that adultery and promiscuity and sex trafficking come from. And in that same moment, right, as this defense attorney within us stands up to object, and we start to argue how relatively good or bad my sin is compared to that person's sin, or how relatively damaging or harmless my sin is compared to that person's sin, consider this, all of those kinds of sin, be they in your thoughts and motives or external, all of them rob other image bearers of God of that inherent worth and dignity. All of them do that. So as much as we want to distance ourselves from those things that we deem particularly wrong, particularly heinous, and locate the problem out there, truly, I am what's wrong with the world. And you and we are what's wrong with the world. And I say this, I say none of this lightly. I say none of this lightly because this is me just as much as it's anybody else. For me, since the end of middle school, early high school, lust, be it in the forms of pornography, be it in the form of lingering eyes, sexually charged thoughts, those are sins that I, like Proverbs 26 describes, return to like a dog returns to its vomit. Right, there are deep roots of that sin of lust in my heart. Which means that I am very much, if anybody is, I am very much implicated by what Jesus says in these words in Matthew chapter 5. Now if sin were just a matter of, of the physical manifestations of it and the physical expressions of it, then I might appear to be a very righteous man. But if sin is a matter of the heart, then I am, just like the Apostle Paul describes himself, the worst of sinners. So what do we do as we find ourselves inevitably implicated by what Jesus says here? Well, if this is a heart-level problem, we've got to look for a heart-level response. What's a heart-level response look like? So second, let's talk about that. Verses 29 and 30, Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, first you read that, that doesn't seem like much of a heart-level response, does it? That seems like a really physical response. Tear out your eye, cut off your hand. Few historians actually mention that the word hand in Jewish culture was often actually a euphemism for the male sex organ. And that actually explains why there are a few recorded instances in the early church where people took this passage completely literally. And one such person, one such infamous example is a man named Origen, who actually contributed a ton to the life of the early church, third century leader of the early church. He infamously castrated himself in response to this verse. Is that what Jesus intends? Is that the response that Jesus intends 
when we read Matthew chapter 5? Self-mutilation. Well, it would be really difficult to reconcile that with the value that Jesus places on life and on the physical body. It would be really hard to reconcile those two things. And the early church was convinced in their understanding of this passage that was not at all what Jesus meant. Which is why a few years after Origen castrated himself, they passed an ordinance in one of their church councils that specifically prohibited people from doing that anymore. Instead of taking that as some kind of literal directive, we're meant to see Jesus' words here, just like we speak in day-to-day life, as hyperbole, right? Exaggeration. But though exaggerated, I think the meaning is still evident, the meaning is still really important. It's that we are meant to deal radically with our sin. We're meant to take drastic measures against our sin. And yet, and some of you are probably saying this in your own mind at this moment, anyone who, like me, is familiar with these kinds of heart-level sins, and even specifically the sin of lust, drastic measures we know in and of themselves are not a deep enough response. If this is a heart-level problem, then we can't just rely on strategies and lists of do's and don'ts. We're going to need some kind of heart-level transformation to occur. And what we know is that we, don't, we cannot, we do not have the power to transform our heart by our drastic measures, by our radical actions. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, first, I think we have to come to see that it's God and it's not us who does the work of transforming the heart. We have to see that. And this is foundational to the Christian faith, that, that we are powerless to change ourselves that we are powerless to save ourselves, that we are actually dead and need to be made alive again, and that God is the one that must do that deep and that transformative work. But then something that I think we too quickly can, can overlook is just how active you and I are invited to be in the process of our own sanctification. So let me explain that. Um, scripture is going to teach us that you and I are, are completely passive in God's salvation of us. Right? We don't contribute things to that. Ezekiel talks about God needing to open up our, our chest cavity, rip out our hard hearts of stone, and put within us a new soft heart of flesh. Right? We are passive in that process. But as God does that and puts this new heart within us, He invites us and He calls each of us into this ongoing work of transformation that He's doing. And this ongoing process of sanctification, this being transformed one degree of glory to another to become more and more like Christ is something that you and I are given this huge and active role in. And one of the major components of that role is what the old Puritans used to call the mortification of the flesh. It's not a phrase that we tend to use anymore in our day and age. Mortification of the flesh is referencing a handful of of New Testament passages that speak about exactly this. So Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore... What is earthly in you? Sexual immorality and impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Hebrews 12, verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. It's an intense resistance to sin. Romans eight thirteen. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And that last one, Romans 8 in particular, I think helps connect the dots. It's God who must transform the heart. 
But that same God who transforms the heart simultaneously calls us to take drastic measures to put our sin to death. And he enables us by giving us his own spirit to actually participate in our own transformation. We get to participate in our own sanctification, our own transformation. Now, do you see the difference between that and just diving headlong into drastic measures to fight sin? One, diving in, requires no faith, requires no dependence. It's just a self-willed resolution to stop sinning. The other, though, is really a faith and dependence-saturated response. It's a response to the transformative work that God is already doing in our hearts, and it's actively stepping into that work that He's doing. And it's trusting Him in stepping into that work that the drastic measures that we take will be used by Him because they are enabled and empowered by His Spirit to actually be effective in putting our sin to death. So these drastic measures might look exactly the same on the outside. But the perspective is completely different. One is aimed just at the surface level, the external actions. The other is actually aimed at the heart. Now at that heart level, all of us, as we follow Jesus, are going to be called, are going to be drawn into a life where the call is to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and to follow Jesus. So what Jesus conveys here in this hyperbole is is that. It's saying, deny yourself. Deny yourself. And self-denial is really critical for us in our discussions about sexual sin. Because every single one of us finds ourselves predisposed to some or a few kinds of sexual sin that that are what implicate us in Jesus' words in this text. Some of us, and this this, this might rub us the wrong way a little bit this morning. I'm okay with putting it out there in the hopes that we'll have good conversation about it. Some of us are predisposed in a heterosexual orientation. Some of us are predisposed in a homosexual orientation. There are a thousand different specific kinds of predispositions that we might have when it comes to sexuality and sexual sin. And yet, so so much of the discussion about sexual sin, and especially when homosexuality is part of the discussion, seem to get hung up on this question of like which predisposition is worse or why is mine a little bit better than yours or they get hung up on why we should never have to change or be transformed or be challenged from the things that we are predisposed to those tend to be the places that the cul-de-sacs that those conversations get hung up in but god help us in that because the real issue the heart level issue here is that every single one of us is broken. And every single one of us is going to experience a corruption of our sexuality in comparison to the good and beautiful gift that God has designed it to be. Which means that every single one of us is likewise going to be called to deny himself, to deny herself. And I promise you, if we start to think about it from the standpoint of self-denial, if we would see ourselves and each other as people all called to self-denial, it would lead us to infinitely more compassion for one another. Because anyone who's ever had to deny themselves, particularly deny themselves at something they felt was so deep in their heart and they were so deeply predisposed to, you know, if that's you, that it feels like to deny yourself. It feels like tearing out your eye and cutting off your hand. The real discussions we need are these. What 
does faithfulness to Jesus look like given that I am predisposed and broken in this particular way? Regardless of how you answer the first part, like how am I predisposed, how am I broken, the the discussion needs to be what does faithfulness to Jesus look like given that? What will self-denial look like for me? And again, we see this is a heart-level problem requiring a heart-level response because regardless of the specific way that I experience brokenness or you experience brokenness, to follow Jesus means that we deny ourselves in that area because we see Jesus as better. And we see him as more satisfying. And we see him worth whatever kind of specific denial of self that you and I are called to make. We deny ourselves, we take drastic measures against our sin because we truly believe that Jesus is better. And Jesus says here, in no uncertain terms, it really is better. It really is better. He says, it's better to take these drastic measures than to be thrown into hell. And he says it twice. And that's somber, and that's unsettling, and it's uncomfortable. And it really wakes us up, I think, quickly to what the stakes are here. But in light of what Jesus is teaching here, here, here's what we have to see in this. The reality is, is that to refuse to step into this active role that God has given us in putting our sin to death, to refuse to step into that active role actually means that we begin to accommodate sin. And if one of God's means of transforming each of our hearts is his enabling us to take drastic measures against sin, then really to neglect that is really just to live unrepentantly. It's to become entrenched in our sin. And to be entrenched in our sin is and really has always been what's truly wrong with the world. Sin is what keeps us separated, alienated from God in this life and in eternity. It's what we are meant to be reconciled to God through and through the work of Jesus. Sin is why things are not the way that they're supposed to be. So the heart-level solution to this is not performance, just like, hey, take these drastic measures or else go to hell. The heart-level solution is repentance. Right? Throw yourself on the mercy of the one who has come to set you free from being entrenched in sin. Deny yourself because in yourself there is sin and there is death that leads to hell, but in Jesus there is life and there is joy and there is satisfaction. Now, as is characteristic of the entire Sermon on the Mount, these are really weighty words. I know I, I'm, I'm expecting that we're feeling that this morning. And so, personally, as I've been in this passage a lot this week, and for you this morning, I'm grateful that you and I get to come to this table together in a couple minutes. And we get to remember, and we get to proclaim together just how much we need the mercy of Jesus. And just how much we need to be sustained by His grace if we're ever going to be able to deny ourselves and step into that active role of putting our sin to death. And we're reminded at this table how Jesus has done what you and I could never hope to accomplish by simply our radical and drastic measures. But before we come, I just want to close by connecting here what Jesus teaches in this passage to this month of prayer and awareness that we're involved in together. A distinctly Christian commitment to mercy and justice and to those mercy and justice issues in the world will only come by first recognizing, like G.K. Chesterton acknowledged, 
that I am what's wrong with the world. That we are what's wrong with the world. To, to ignore that, to ignore that will inevitably lead us to a mindset where we become the saviors of the world. Right? Where we become the redeemers, where we become the rescuers, we become the solution to the world's problems. But, if we acknowledge that we are what's wrong with the world, if we acknowledge our own deep and ongoing need for the mercy and salvation of the one true Savior, the one true Rescuer, the one true Redeemer, it's then and only then that we are transformed by Him, moved by Him, sent by Him into the world that He loves to participate in this rescuing and redemptive mission. Then, and only then, do we become the reconciled reconcilers and the redeemed redeemers and those who have been given mercy that we might offer that very same mercy to other people. So as you learn and as you pray about sex trafficking and human trafficking and these other issues this month, I invite you, become indignant about them. Let yourself get angry that this exists in the world. This is not the way that it's supposed to be. But at the same time, may you experience the same indignant response toward your own sin and toward your own sinful contribution to the world. Because it's as we experience our own desperation for mercy from Jesus, that's when we truly become instruments of His mercy in the world and not just instruments of our own self-righteous Messiah complex. And this is the hope of the mercy of Jesus, the hope of the mercy of Jesus that will sustain a lifetime of being people of mercy and not just a month. It's that if Jesus can save me, then truly he can save the world. Amen. Let's pray. We are people desperate for your mercy, Jesus. Jesus, you expose our sin when you drill it down to the heart level and refuse to let us get away with external compliance. And we find ourselves exposed in that. And so we rejoice in the hope of your mercy that you have done what we could not, that by your death and resurrection, you save us from ourselves. And that like we sung together this morning, that because of your work, because of faith in you, no condemnation now exists for us. So would we rejoice in your mercy this morning? Would we ever more deeply comprehend your mercy to me, to us as people, that that would be what fuels our pursuit of mercy in the world? You have rescued us. You have given us a great salvation. We are desperate sinners in need of that mercy. As you save us, move us.